now listening to Grace City Portland. If you have a Bible, um, by the way, my name is Simon. If I, if I failed to introduce myself, I'm the pastor of Grace City, one of, of several leaders here at this church. We're going to jump right into the Bible this morning, so if you have one, um, now would be the time to grab it and open it up to the book of Acts chapter 1. If you'd like to, to use one of the Bibles, we've got some boxes in the, the aisles here. You're very welcome to grab one of those out and uh, flip it open uh, far right, book of Acts chapter 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses. I'm going to pray, and then we will continue from there. Um, and some of the, the scriptures that we'll be covering this morning, of course, will also be on the screen here. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after a suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, which is where they were, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said this, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's an explicit reference to Daniel chapter seven. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Again, if you're kind of wondering what on earth is that all about, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, check it out. Jesus is being super, super obvious. He is the one who appeared as the son of man, who would come in the clouds of heaven. He is God in flesh. This morning, we are going to begin working through a, a new series of teachings, and we can actually go to the next uh, slide there, entitled, Are We There Yet? You love this? I love this. Are we there yet? We live, um, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have signed up to live in a world of great, wonderful, difficult, weird, hope-filled tension. Just like the disciples who had seen Jesus 
the one who they had come to believe was the Messiah, foretold in the ancient scriptures for hundreds, even thousands of years. They believed that he was the Messiah who died, who rose again, who conquered death, who would come to restore the kingdom of God, the kingdom to Israel. And so they asked him, is it now at this time? Is this it? Is this the moment we've been waiting for? And Jesus said, essentially, not quite yet. In fact, it's not really for you to know these times that you're wondering about, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you're gonna be a part of my great mission beginning in Jerusalem and throughout all of the earth. The disciples wanted to know, is now the time? Is this it? Is this the moment we've been waiting for? And as Christians, this is the tension that we have been invited into, that we've been called to be a part of. This reality that Jesus, the Messiah, God who entered into the world, conquered sin and death to inaugurate his kingdom in the earth. He did that. There was an event in history where Jesus came back from the dead. And that's a reality. And yet, we're not quite there yet. Because although Jesus has overcome sin and death, I live in a world still riddled with tension and, and pain and occasionally doubt and all sorts of other things that makes me feel like the, the kingdom of God's not uh, fully here yet. And I want us to think about how can we, as followers of Jesus, now, today, in Portland, or wherever you're visiting from today, how do we do that tension? How do we, like those disciples, get on mission with Jesus and live our lives in this world so as to fully maximize and embrace, understand, and to live well within this tension that we've been called into? So are we there yet? I'm going to do some drawing on the chalkboard this morning. Yeah. It's the best. Let's see if I can manage not to knock it over. Um, the tension between deliverance and, I don't know, let's call it destiny. We could say destination, but I like the way destiny sounds. So the scriptures tell us that um, because Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross, that I have been delivered. In Jesus, I have been rescued. I have been saved. I have been healed. I have been set free. I have been made new. All of these things, because of who God is in Christ and what he did for me on the cross, I am delivered. And yet, I'm on a journey to someplace because I'm not there yet. And that's the tension we're talking about. The, the last series we just completed last week, I kept quoting this Bible verse over and over and over. It was 1 John chapter 4, 17. It says, because um, as he is, so are we in this world. 
And I kept drilling down this idea that Jesus and the life he lived as a human being filled with the spirit of God, fully God, fully human, but the perfect human filled with the spirit of God, he is, he is Christus exemplar. He is Christ our example, the human being whom we're meant to exemplify as spirit-filled children of God ourselves. And so that's true. But what I didn't read to you was another verse in 1 John Chapter 3, verse 2, that says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. I never read that one. Yeah. Were you waiting for that one? Yeah, yeah, there it is. There it is. As he is, so are we in this world, and... When he appears, we shall become like him. We're not quite there yet. We're on a journey. Why is this important and how do we do it? Why is this important and how do we do it? Um, anyone be, been on a road trip lately? Yeah, a couple road trips. Any, anyone grow up doing like epic family road trips? or maybe like not so epic family road trips. <laughs> I'm at the stage in my life now where um, I'm a dad and I have three kids and we do some road trips and it's hilarious. It's hilarious becoming a dad and just seeing how it just, just it all just repeats itself. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's funny and super not funny because after you've been driving for like 10 hours and your kids have asked you now for the 100th time, are we there yet? You want to, you start to lose your mind a little bit. Um, little dad, dad tip. Um, here's what, I don't know if I've actually done this, but one of these days, after they've asked you for the 100th time, are, are we there yet? Slam on the brakes, pull over, and just say yes. This is it. Right here, in the middle of nowhere. This is where we've been driving for 10 hours to get to. Yes, this is can. I'm glad you guessed it, we are here. And you wanna just put your fist through the windscreen because it's like maddening. It's like, no, obviously we're not there yet. And <clears throat> we, we don't want to be like those kids, constantly asking, are we there yet, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. You're ruining the journey, okay? Just look out the window, enjoy the conversation, be a part of the experience. No, we're not there yet, we will get there. And there's a tension to be embraced. There's also, I'll say two things. Why is this important, how do we get there? Number one, besides the, the silly road trip analogy, um, following Jesus is a beautiful experience. It's, it, it will change you, it will challenge you, it will, it, it will be full of joy and amazement and awe and wonder, it, it, will, it will be the hardest thing you ever do and the most amazing thing you ever do. Following Jesus, it will involve dying to yourself, it will involve experiencing the resurrection power of God in Christ. And it would be a really, really good thing if we could do that well, if, if we could actually enjoy the journey, if we, could, if, we could, um, if we could figure out that tension. There's a lot of 
You know, we talk about fake news, all the time fake news, this and that. There's a lot of fake theology out there. There's a lot of really poor theology, and fake theology is real, and there's so much of it circulating in our world, and I'm not trying to be critical of any specific church or, or speaker, but I think if you just listen for a minute, you'll realize that there's a lot of, a lot of garbage swirling around out there. And if you're not looking to the scriptures carefully, you can quickly get caught up in something that's not, it's not actually following Jesus and, and entering into this tension between deliverance and destiny. Um, I remember meeting uh, a young man when I first became a Christian. I was doing an internship on the, the university campus where I had gotten saved, where I had been delivered. And I wanted so badly to tell other young people, young men in particular, about Jesus. And so I literally would spend my afternoons going back onto my university campus trying to do just evangelism, like cold call evangelism. Um, and I met this guy, and I said, hey, I, I'd love to, to, to talk to you about Jesus. And he said, oh, Jesus, that's cool. Like, I'm down with Jesus. And, and uh, I was a little surprised at his response because he, he seemed slightly um, inebriated, like he, he super drunk, obviously, eyes bloodshot, smelled like, and he seemed like, okay, like, cool. Um, how's... How's it going? How's, how's it working out for you? How you can, can I pray for you? Can I help you? Can I encourage you? Can I... Something. And uh, that we started talking, and he said, well, you know, I'm a selfish saint. And, uh, and I remember thinking, oh, well, it's, it's alliterated, so I, I guess that, that must be a thing. Um, <laughs> but now, I think looking back um, a few years later... I've realized that, that there's a lot of Christians out there who've got this idea of like, like this is what my journey is going to look like, and this is how I'm going to follow Jesus, and, and they completely miss out on like what it's really meant to be, on like the, the power of, of the Spirit that transforms us, that sets us free, that makes us more like Jesus, and it's a journey that's unlike any other. And so that's why I think it's important because if we're gonna follow Jesus, I say let's, let's sign up for the real deal. Let's follow him in all the fullness of, of what that is and what that's meant to be. Um, so, how do we do it? Well, we're gonna do what the original followers of Jesus did and we're gonna study, uh, meditate upon, and attempt to apply together uh, the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? Naturally, and maybe a bit of Exodus as well, because um, that makes that's that's obviously what we should do. So let's look at First Corinthians chapter ten, verses one to fourteen. That one will be up here. This is actually what the original followers of Jesus did do. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to a group of believers uh, in the church of the ancient city of Corinth. This is his first letter or one of his first letters, entitled 1 Corinthians, about midway through the letter, chapter 10, starting in verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, he's going back, were all under the cloud, and that they, were, they all passed through the sea, that is the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, 
and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. This was all numbers in Deuteronomy. And that rock was Christ. Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's, that's an Exodus reference. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes in the desert. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Essentially, Paul is recapping a massive chunk of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's saying that in the past, our ancestors experienced this tension. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt and then set out on a journey to eventually cross over into the land that God had promised their ancestors, namely Abraham. And they went on this journey and all that they had been rescued, they had been delivered from slavery, they had been set free, they had passed through the Red Sea. It's a picture of baptism, Paul says. And they were on their way to the promised land. And there was this long journey that they had to go on. Along the way, they made some terrible mistakes. God was faithful. He led them. He provided for them. He disciplined them. He gave them chance after chance after chance. Their leader, Moses, who's like a foreshadow of Christ, he interceded for them time and time again. But he's saying that this journey that has been written down for us, that our ancestors went on, is, is to be an example for us and even a warning that we wouldn't, we wouldn't do what they did. We wouldn't make the mistakes that they made, but we would experience the life that God has made available to us in Jesus. Let me... Um, let me sketch this up for us. We're going we're gonna to look at this quite a few times over the next uh, few weeks or so. So this, this is what we just read. Okay? We, we started with... God's people having been living in for like several centuries, 400 plus years, in Egypt as slaves. They were delivered... They were delivered by God parting the waters of the Red Sea 
so that they might pass through and be rescued from their pursuing uh, former slave owners, Egypt. This, as I said, is the Red Sea. Once they crossed over the Red Sea, uh, they were on their way to the mountain. If I can get this right. That is known as Sinai. Mount Sinai um, or Mount Horeb. This is also referred to occasionally. Before they got there, they passed through a desert It was about a 50-day journey. Um, Just after they celebrated the Passover, they left Egypt, they made an exodus, they crossed over the Red Sea, and they passed through a wilderness called the Wilderness of Shur. We'll just call it the wild for now. And this is like a desert. This is the Wilderness of Shur. About 50 days later, they make it to Mount Sinai. At Sinai, Moses ascended and received the 10 words. The commandments or the law. There God spoke to Moses and said, say to my people that they are to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And then he says, come up to me and I'm going to explain to you in detail what that will actually look like. I'm going to direct you so that you in fact can act like a holy nation, my representatives on earth. And so they do that at Sinai. They end up camping out at the base of Sinai for about a year. Then eventually God says, right, we're ready. We've got all of the details in place. We've got leaders appointed. It's time that we set out to our destination. So they leave Sinai and they journey for about 11 days through the wilderness of Paran. And they stop about there. This is all... uh, Perfectly accurate. More wilderness. Eventually, they're going to make their way to Canaan, to a place that will eventually, Jerusalem. To a place called Jerusalem. But in order to do that, they're gonna have to cross a little river called the Jordan. Now, after traveling traveling from Sinai to the wilderness of Paran, they arrive at a little region called uh, Kadesh Barnea. And there, God speaks to Moses again. He says, look, before you go into the land that I promised you, I want you to send spies. Select 12 spies to go scout out the land 
so that you guys can get a bit of a strategy and, and see what I'm about to do. Anyone remember how long the spies were away scouting out the land? Say it out loud. Just be, just be, nailed it. 40 days. 12 of them. Two of them were Caleb of the tribe of Judah and Joshua, who was like Moses' assistant. They're gone for 40 days. They come back, and Moses says, right, what's, what's the plan? How are we looking? Is it as good as, as we've been promised? Joshua and Caleb, they're like, it's better. Uh, the other 10 are like, it's good, but there's a problem. And anyone remember what the problem was? Giants. Big giants. So for 40 days they're gone. They see big fruit. They see big opportunities. They see big giants. Joshua and Caleb are like, right, but our God is bigger, so what are we waiting for? God promised that he would, he would, he would, he deliver us once, he'll deliver us again. We can enter into the land that he promised us. We can do this. The other 10 are like, uh, I don't know. I know God said, but, and they rebelled. They chose to believe the emotions of fear rather than trust that God could deliver them as he promised. And so those 40 days that the spies are checking out the land end up costing them 40 years of wandering in the desert. And so they end up wandering around this desert for 40 years because they refused to trust God, because they refused to believe that God was bigger than any giant they might face in the land that he had promised them. Eventually, 40 years later, God says, right, an entire generation has passed. The only ones that are left are Joshua, Caleb, and Moses. He says, it's time. Cross the Jordan and take the land. They start here with Jericho. So this is what Paul is describing. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt. They crossed over a Red Sea, which he likens to baptism. They passed through the wilderness of Shur. God gives them food, God gives them water. God provides for all of their needs. 50 days later, they arrive at the mountain and they receive the law. According to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31, that there would come a day when God would do something new. And instead of inscribing his law on stone tablets, he would inscribe his law on the hearts of his children. That he would fill us with his spirit, with himself, Give us not hearts of stone, but new, soft hearts of flesh. Hearts that have been inscribed with his law. Which is why I would argue, and this could be slightly controversial, but I'm going to make the point that this is synonymous with Pentecost. 50 days after Passover is the Christian festival of Pentecost. 
It's the day when God poured out his spirit in Jerusalem as they were in the upper room and wrote his law on our hearts. And they leave Sinai. Now they're in the wilderness. Now the journey really begins. This is our world. This is our tension. We have been delivered. We have been filled with the spirit of God. And now Jesus is leading us on this journey to the new Jerusalem. I love that Luis uh, read from the book of Revelation this morning. Later on, John describes the new heavens and the new earth, the true promised land, as it were. And he sees this picture of Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem descending and heaven and earth becoming one place once again. This is where Jesus is taking us, the new Jerusalem. Here is where we live until our king returns. How will we do as we navigate the wild of our lives? How will we do when we are confronted with giants? How will we do when we're tempted to grumble? How will we do when those who are living with might tempt us to uh, compromise? How will we do with our sexuality? How will we do in our trusting God to overcome any obstacle that we might come up against? How will we do when we're tempted to doubt? How will we do on the journey? And what sort of lessons can we learn from our ancestors? Lessons for life. Lessons for living in the now, but not yet. I want to highlight five areas that we're going to actually be focusing on as we work our way through fairly large chunks of Numbers and Deuteronomy and a little bit of Exodus. Number one, anticipation. Um, by the way, we'll call this, because alliterations really are helpful. We have been delivered. We do have a destiny. In the meantime, Jesus instructed anyone who would follow him, anyone who would come after him, to die to themselves and to take up their cross daily. So there you go. I was rather happy to find a third D. Thank you. Number one, we are living in anticipation. Write it over here. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have an eager expectation that God is present, that I am a child of God now, and that by the working of the Holy Spirit, it is entirely possible for us to experience 
at least to a degree, his transforming power in all sorts of ways right here, right now. So part of this picture is that, in fact, we have been delivered. And in fact, although we are looking to our ultimate destiny, God is present here. And now I am a child of God. And to at least a degree, I should expect to witness and experience and to be a partaker of the very real power of God to heal, to save, to set free, to change, to transform, to provide, to lead, to speak, to fill my heart with joy and peace. And to some degree, the kingdom of heaven should be available for me here now. Because Jesus commanded me to pray that the kingdom of heaven would come and that my life would be like a signpost The people would be able to catch glimpses of the reality of the kingdom of God touching down on earth because King Jesus has crossed the river. And I am seated with him in heavenly places. And although I do live in this tension of now but not yet, I should expect, I should have an anticipation that God is present. And at any moment, even, he could return. The king will return. Now there's a danger if I simply live here all the time uh, because I have prayed uh, for various forms of healing for myself and for others and the kingdom of heaven did not break out. At least not as far as I could tell. And there's the danger of Focusing so solely on the reality that Jesus is alive and that he is king and he is seated on his throne, the kingdom of heaven is a reality that I can develop what theologians call an over-realized eschatology. I begin to live and think and act as if Jesus has already come again and that the kingdom of heaven has actually in its fullness already touched down. And what that is is a complete setup for disillusionment and frustration or all sorts of weird uh, the, uh, dominion theology. And you get all sorts of weird sects and cults out there who will argue that actually you can experience full healing now. And we need to like take dominion now because the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand, true, but it's yet to come. And so we mustn't only live with anticipation We also need to live in hope. Two Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. We all with unveiled faces, like Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's a journey, it's a process. It is progressive. Philippians chapter one, verse six says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What he began, he will complete. And so not only am I anticipating the reality of God's presence and work in my life here and now, I'm also always living in a state of hope, looking forward to the completion of what God has started. 
realizing that one day I will be completely healed. One day I will be delivered from this body of death. One day Jesus will return and the world will be set right. The kingdom of heaven will become one with the kingdom of this world again. It'll be like the Garden of Eden where we're walking together in perfect communion with each other and our God. And that is the day to look forward to. That is why as people of Jesus, we are people of hope because we've not yet experienced the fullness of God's resurrection power in Christ, but we will and we can look forward to it and we can be excited about it and we can live like it. We can have hope and we mustn't get disillusioned because I know that just because I pray for someone to be healed now and it doesn't seem like it's happened yet, it will But the grace of God, Jesus is seated on his throne. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. No sermon is complete without Lewis. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. It's important that we live in the tension. Number three. Um, Running out of room. Probably can't read that. Consequence. This journey that we're on as we follow Jesus is a journey of great consequence. Paul's writing. These are New Testament, New Covenant believers in Corinth. He warns them. He says that there was those who rebelled, who refused to trust God and to follow his ways. And because of their sexual immorality, 23,000 of them died. What do you do with that? The point is that as we follow Jesus, there is great consequence to the choices that we make. Our Father disciplines those whom he loves. If we refuse to obey him, there will be dire consequences. If we decide to trust him, there will be amazing consequences. But our choices as we follow him between deliverance and destiny really, really matter. It didn't have to take God's children 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness. They could have gone straight there if they had just listened to Caleb and Joshua. But they didn't. The people refused. And God was not pleased with most of them. You say, yeah, but that's Old Testament. No, that's New Testament. This is Paul's point, is that we must look to our fathers, our ancestors, as an example. We must be remembered. We must heed the warning and not be like them. But follow Jesus and trust him, knowing that our choices come with great consequence. Number four. Practice. 
First Peter chapter three, verses, chapter one, verses three to 11. I don't, I don't think this is actually up there, but I'm gonna read this to you. First Peter, no, second Peter chapter one. Don't laugh. <laughs> second Peter chapter one, starting in verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse five, for this reason, make every effort to supplement or add to your faith, uh, faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness or endurance and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection or mutual affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in relationship with Jesus. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed, that he was delivered from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we practice these things, we will not fall. Are you beginning to feel the tension? Truth and grace. New life in Jesus Christ. I have been delivered by the grace of God he set his people free. Did they earn it? No. Far from it. It was a sheer act of God's loving grace that he rescued his people, that he has rescued us through his work in Jesus. Does he then call us to, to be diligent, to add to faith these qualities, and that if we practice them increasingly so, that we will keep from falling? Because there are consequences to the life we live between deliverance and destiny. Is that heavy? Yeah, that's heavy. Practice. We practice taking up our cross daily. We practice generosity. We practice responsibility. We practice service. We practice trusting our king. We practice loving each other. We practice laying our lives down. We practice being a community together. We practice faithfulness. We take the grace that God has given us and we put it to action by practicing the life that he has saved us for. And finally, and this would be an utterly incomplete list without this one, we learn to rest daily. Jude 
There's a little letter in the New Testament entitled Jude. Chapter one, verse 24 says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. One of the biggest mistakes that Israel, God's people, made in this wilderness journey was that they just kept forgetting or refusing to rest in the faithfulness of their God. They constantly relapsed into thinking that if if this is going to work out, I'm gonna have to be good enough, I'm gonna have to be strong enough, I'm gonna have to be smart enough, I'm going to have to take down these giants single-handedly. God was like, did you forget what I did to the Egyptians? You had nothing going for you. And I was faithful. This is what he says in in 1 Corinthians, but God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted or tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God is faithful. One of the first mistakes that Israel made, there was a guy, this was this was. This was why they were still at Sinai. There was a guy who got caught collecting sticks on the Sabbath, the day of rest. Uh, it had major, major consequences. And so we must learn to rest in the finished work of Christ. Knowing that although we, we embrace this, we practice Ultimately, we rest. I love the writer of Hebrews. He says, this is, this is, if you're going to work on anything, work on resting in Jesus. Work on learning to rest in him. Knowing that he has crossed over, that he has defeated our enemies, that he has rescued us, and he will bring to completion the good work that he has started. So I think that's about it. What are you saying? Mind blown? Okay, good, good, good. Great, wonderful. Mind blown. Can we stand together, please?